welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health here at GW University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the office's Administrative Director. Today we're talking about expressive arts therapy with Juliet King, an Associate Professor in the Art Therapy Department at GW's Columbian College of Arts and Sciences. She also holds an appointment as an Adjunct Associate Professor of Neurology in the Indiana University School of Medicine. Professor King's research explores the systematic integration of art therapy and neuroscience with a particular focus on neuroaesthetics and mobile brain-body imaging, or MOBI, as a method of understanding the mechanisms of change in the therapeutic process. She is currently a PhD student in translational health sciences here at GW, and her dissertation focuses on the systematic integration of neuroscience and art therapy for the clinical treatment of psychological trauma and stress-related disorders. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Professor King. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. So, Juliet, what are expressive arts therapies? Is it the same as art therapy? Are they related? Um, and what do we need to know about them? Yeah, expressive arts therapies are an integrative approach to working with people. Um, essentially, expressive therapies are a way of telling without talking. And so expressive therapists use different forms of communication, be it art making or dance or music, to help people express themselves uh, symbolically, through metaphor, through the materials and methods, and not necessarily having to rely on the words. And, you know, when people, you know, have challenges, it's oftentimes hard to find the words to explain where it is, um, how it is that you feel or where it is that you're coming from. So what the expressive therapies do, essentially, is help people kind of tap into and understand a little bit more about themselves through these properties of creativity and through creative self-expression, be it visual art therapy, dance movement therapy, music therapy, poetry, writing, play, that sort of thing. Now, what is the training involved for the expressive art therapies? Yeah, so for visual art therapy, dance movement, and psychodrama, the master's degree is the entry level for the profession. And so in order to be an art therapist, you need to have a master's degree in art therapy in order to practice. Whereas for music therapy, the entry level is the bachelor's, but then oftentimes people go on to get a master's in that as well. And typically for poetry, therapy and play and writing like typically you're going to see those kinds of um, uh, those kinds of approaches more in a certificate program or something like that I think something that's really important to emphasize here is that visual art therapists like dance movement therapists and music therapists are also trained in verbal psychotherapy. And so we do the talk part of the psychotherapy in addition to the art part. You know, essentially, it's important to be able to put words to one's own experience, but oftentimes it takes a, it, take, it could take a bit to get there. And so the art therapist has specialized training and how to help people express themselves um, non-verbally, you know, symbolically or through metaphor, but then eventually within that therapeutic relationship, eventually find the words of their own and be able to practice um, how it is that they can explain themselves or, or express themselves and, and talk about what it is that they're dealing with. 
That sounds wonderful. And it sounds like something that I think most people can kind of understand how this would be beneficial. Um, But I'm sure there's a lot of research out there too. So what does the science tell us about art therapy um, and the expressive therapies? Yeah, that's a that's a really big question, right? Science is very broad and breadth and depth and the expressive therapies are, are very broad. And I think it's important to um, try to put a, a, a structure on how to answer that question. Um, most notably, how is it that we're learning about the science and in particular the, the neuroscience, the brain science behind and underneath why these kinds of approaches are so healthy and helpful for people? You know, because back in the day, we only learned about the brain through autopsy, right? The best way to understand what was happening inside a person was to watch them, to see behavior, to hear what's happening, right? To assess what we can see on the outside. But ultimately, with advanced technologies such as, you know, neuroimaging with FMIRS and, and fMRI and EEG and these different kinds of advanced technologies, we're able to start to make some more these connections between what's happening on the inside and what's happening on the outside. And, you know, expressive therapists from the very beginning, you know, we are rooted in the understanding that the artistic process is pretty complicated. You know, it involves cognition, it involves emotionality, it involves movement, it involves sensory systems, right? And so ultimately, what we've always known as expressive therapists is that when you engage in different kinds of art making and artistic expression, you're actually helping the mind connect to the body more. Now, that's a very generalized statement. What does that actually mean, the mind connect to the body? Well, we're learning a bit more about what actually happens in the brain and in the bodily systems when we are engaged in this art making in the therapeutic environment. And I'm going to keep emphasizing that part because it's within that therapeutic environment and within that relationship that the change can take place. You know, making art with the therapist or in the company rather of the therapist is a very different experience than making art in one's own studio. Both can be very therapeutic and helpful. But something different happens when you're actually in that therapeutic relationship and in that process. And so you can imagine if you look at what happens to the brain when a person is engaged in art making or a creative process, if you look at some of the creativity science, you'll see that the entire brain lights up when a person's engaged in art making. These shifts that happen, you know, when you're involved in art making and you're involved in like moving your hands and your eyes are, you know, your visual system is engaged and you're using different materials that are going to engage your sensory systems. We can start to understand and hypothesize that when we engage a range of what we could call these different kind of inputs, then our brain is going to be more actively engaged. And so I think it's easiest to try to answer this question by looking at just kind of this this um a, a, a generalized understanding of what we call neuroplasticity right and and all the expressive therapies essentially are rooted in what we understand about neuroplasticity which is the brain's ability to change and rewire itself throughout the entire lifespan 
right? Neuroplasticity allows the brain to talk to itself and connect with itself. And the more that we understand about brain science, the more we understand that functions in the brain are less localized than we used to think. Meaning, you know, the there's an old, old archaic idea that creative people are right-brained and math people are left-brained, and that has been debunked many moons ago, right? What we understand now is that the brain creates functional hubs and networks, and it's really within these networks that we function. And so engaging art-making, again, within that relationship, hypothetically, helps us connect how we can look at different kinds of behavioral change within this larger context of neuroplasticity. And, you know, psychotherapy is all about learning. And neuroplasticity is at at the basis of our learning potentials. And so what we found through different kinds of research, visual art therapy and music and dance movement, is that the expressive therapies really enhance the capacity for the brain to be more plastic. It enhances our ability to be flexible. It enhances the capacity to objectify or to step back from a situation and maybe see things in a different way. And more specifically, we're finding that activity-dependent changes, right? Like um, our brain is going to change at the result of different activities with the more input that we have. So again, if you can think about the sensory, the movement, the, the visual systems, the more inputs we have to engage, then the more capacities we have to make a specific change in our own behavior. And so what we found in some specific studies in in art therapy, for example, is how, um, you know, a a good example is is with the dementias and with Alzheimer's disease, certain parts of the brain become less plastic. And I, I won't get into the the nitty gritty of it, but certain parts of the brain become less plastic with injury. And what we're finding is how the art making can help those parts of the brain um, compensate. So not only help the parts of the brain that are less plastic become a little bit more malleable, but then also tap into the other parts of the brain that can compensate for the less flexible parts. And we call those compensatory functions. We're also finding how creative activity engages the reward system, which is also going to influence dopamine production, right? So you can think about that in terms of disease states such as Parkinson's disease and how the role of movement and engagement can really be um, not only a helpful and healthy thing, but also a crucial thing if we are trying to work with a person with Parkinson's on both motor or non-motor symptoms. But then we're also going to be able to see a different change in things like quality of life, right? And and those non-motor symptoms such as maybe depression or anxiety that accompany the disease state. So those are just a few small examples of how neuroplastic changes can help to alter or respond to or address some of the the challenges that are accompanied by disease lifestyle and, and things like that. Juliet, that is so fascinating because what that brings to mind to me are those wonderful YouTube videos where they'll 
play music or show something visually to someone with um uh dementia or one of the 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 dementia commit um conditions and suddenly this person who may have been like a blank slate comes alive again and talks and yeah i think um i well what i'm thinking of when you mention that jeanette is that fabulous movie called alive inside um uh by dan cohen now he is uh he brought music into um facilities for the aging and i think what you're explaining there is how when people were introduced to music something different happened within them and they were able to essentially go from looking like they were in a catatonic state and having a real stymied ability to connect with another person to Mm -hmm. much more energy, um, which you can consider to be increased blood flow, right? Like um, the ability to get up, to move, to dance and to connect. Um, And that happened through the vehicle of music. You know, and music therapy has really come, I think, the furthest of all of the expressive therapies in terms of their research with neuroplasticity and understanding more specifically the incredible impact that music has on the neuroplastic changes in the brain. Now, prior to GW, you developed the first art therapy and neuroscience and medicine program at at the um, Indiana University um, Neuroscience Center. Now, you continue to oversee that program. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, yeah. We're really fortunate to have the support of the IU School of Medicine Department of Neurology and also the Clinical Translational Sciences Institute um, at IU who have supported uh, the development of the art therapy and neuroscience and medicine program now for, I guess we're in about our fourth year running. And what this program is, is basically a clinical art therapy program that provides services to a range of patients with neurological problems. So looking at uh, diseases of the aging, uh, movement disorders such as Parkinson's, as I mentioned, also autoimmune challenges such as MS and myasthenia gravis. And we're also developing a clinic uh, for ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And essentially what we do is we provide clinical care. You know, we have a robust team of neurologists out in Indy that see the value of art therapy as a, a, not only just a complement to treatment, but sometimes a treatment of choice when it comes to the therapeutic potential. Uh, an area that we're really growing in is that of uh, what used to be called conversion disorder, but is now called um, psychogenic movement disorder. And ultimately, you know, the, the science is still out on, on psychogenic movement disorders, but we see a lot of it. And essentially is when people experience physical symptoms without any known medical etiology, you know? And this is a conundrum. It's about 30% of the patients that we see. Um, And the more that we learn about this, the more we learn that there are potential ties to trauma and underlying trauma and this whole concept of this disconnect between the mind and the body. So the body keeps the score, says Bessel van der Kolk, right? Who is a premier uh, researcher and scientist in the realm of psychological trauma. And could not be more um, sound in a statement in terms of our bodies will speak what our words, what our brains cannot. And our bodies protect ourselves. Our defense mechanisms 
protect ourselves. And so ultimately, we can understand psychogenic movement as a, a one of metaphor, you know, and very kind of symbolic in that the body is acting out what perhaps a person has not yet been able to process on their own. And so you can imagine how the arts really come in in handy here to help a person step back to see a little bit more of themselves more completely to engage in a creative process, which again is going to um, help those neural connections be made. Um, and also be able to see um, who you are in like a whole gestalt, you could say, you know, like being able to see a picture, everything that you make, everything that you do in a creative process essentially is a projection. It's a part of you, you know, and this is like an isomorphic principle, meaning what you make on the outside speaks to represents what's going on on the inside. It just has different properties, you know? And so being able to use this way of working can be really helpful with all patients. I was talking about psychogenic movement, but essentially with all patients, because it helps you kind of like walk around the sculpture and see the different sides a little bit more easily, you know? Absolutely. Love that. And, and I love that you're bringing up all this research and science. As you know, GW Integrative Medicine is all about the research. So we'd love to hear more about um, the research behind neuroaesthetics and mobile brain body imaging. And then, of course, we want to hear about your dissertation as well. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is really exciting to talk about. I mean, neuroaesthetics is, in short, you know, neuroaesthetics is a type of cognitive neuroscience. And neuroaesthetics emerged over the last few decades from empirical aesthetics. And as you know, like aesthetics is a, a branch of philosophy. It's a way that we understand questions such as what is beauty, right? What is art, right? And aesthetics ultimately are perception. And so we can understand that the way that people view and perceive art, whether it's a painting or a dance performance is going to have, or any other variation, is going to have an effect on our brain and an effect on our system, our biological, physiological systems. So the field of neuroaesthetics looks at that. The neuroaesthetic scientists look at how does the brain respond to aesthetic experiences and what implications does that have for people. Neuroaesthetics researchers look at how the brain responds to aesthetic experiences. And we can understand brain response to also indicate a physiological response, right? In that our brains are connected to our bodies. And so what neuroaesthetics has traditionally done is look at how different parts of the brain and different pathways in the brain are engaged when we look at and experience different artistic um, forms of expression, be it a painting or a dance performance or something like that. I think the most obvious or easy way to talk about neuroaesthetics is how when we look at artwork, our brains are engaged in some concept of reward, helping us figure out what we like and what we don't like, um, helping us understand what our, what our bias systems are, right? We do a lot of talk these days, thank heavens, of, of implicit bias and how we have, um, you know, we, we kind of all wear our own set of glasses, whether we realize it or not. Well, the neuroaesthetics literature is really helping us understand these bias systems when we look at, at, at different um, sets of stimuli, let's just say. But 
what neuroaesthetics, the, the branch of cognitive neuroscience, hasn't quite translated yet into clinical health populations. There's some good work going on at the IM lab at Hopkins, um, looking at uh, what they're calling translational neuroaesthetics and, and understanding, you know, how do we how do we take this really good information, this good data, and how do we take it to the people? Because traditionally neuroaesthetics research is confined to the lab. So that's really where my interest in neuroaesthetics emerged, looking at, you know, this is kind of a fairly obvious branch of neuroscience to dive into in that it, it comes from aesthetics, right? And, and how important aesthetics and artwork, obviously, is to the foundations of art therapy. So I've been interested in how do we translate that to the people? How do we take that out of the lab and, and, and work in the wild? Because art therapy is about the wild. Art therapy is about working with people in the community context, in the clinical realm, right? And mm-hmm. so a problem with, with neuroimaging, you know, art therapy has cultivated some really great research looking at looking at cortisol levels and decreased stress, you know, looking at how brainwave activity changes before and after our therapy interventions, even looking at like EEG and seeing how brainwave activity changes with the use of different materials and methods, you know, really supporting our main theories. But the problem with that is that typically neuroimaging is very difficult to use when you're in an active engagement with art because there's too much noise that gets involved. So like, for example, with MRI, you can't move around very much. I mean, unless you want to be studying how, what a person's like in a coffin, right? Like (laughs) making art is an active process. So here comes in this realm of this, this beautiful, um, contemporary neuroimaging called mobile brain body imaging. And it's really a combination of EEG or electroencephalogram and sometimes virtual reality components, but FNIRS, which similar to fMRI looks at like blood oxygenation levels and like looks at the function in the brain. And it's like the, and, and eye tracking, you know, what are our eyes doing? And MOBI or mobile brain body imaging, MOBI was typically used or traditionally used to understand more about space navigation. How is it that we're seeing, you know, um, how we're moving through a room or, or moving from one room to another, right? And, and really looking at um, through a lens of embodied cognition, meaning um, the way that we see things, the way that we think is very much informed by our relationship within the environment, right? By how it is that we move in, in, about the space, by our bodies. And so, taking the you know that that kind of philosophical grounding and then using these different components of neuroimaging will allow art therapy and the expressive therapies to do research live in the wild taking neuroaesthetics and you know a framework of neuroaesthetics and then combining that with contemporary neuroimaging such as MOBI seems to be the future for how to put some more evidence base um, underneath art therapy and understanding more about the neural correlates of artistic expression and, and how they influence healing.
So combining neuroaesthetics with contemporary neuroimaging is the future, I think, for expressive therapies. My dissertation, um, which I'm actively involved in the process uh, here at GW, I have the fortune to be able to work with a great team, Dr. Kalk and Dr. Vanderwees here in the Translational Health Sciences Department. And I'm putting together a study that is built on what it is that we know so far about the capacities of neuroscience science and the theories and systematic approaches of art therapy, but more specifically into an application, what we're calling now a toolbox, to um, push forward the evidence base for the profession of art therapy when working with people um, that have experienced trauma. And what we can understand in pretty much all mental health right now is that trauma is at the root of of most problems. And, uh, and many people that come into therapy experience some kind of trauma in one way or another. And we can see how the brain responds to traumatic experiences through dysregulation, disruption in homeostasis, our sympathetic, parasympathetic, you know, our autonomic systems get knocked off our rocker. To, and that that's the same pretty much collectively or universally. That's the way our brains are made. So whether we're experiencing a small trauma or collective trauma, like everybody seems to be with COVID or a global pandemic, or if you have absolutely right a, a, a more a, a different kind of trauma, like trauma is really subjective, but it's also something that happens to you. Mm-hmm. And with the prevalence of trauma and the research that we've done in art therapy, we're really starting to carve out how, as my colleague Tally Tripp says, um, art therapy is a treatment of choice for trauma because of what we know about the verbal centers in the brain when we experience trauma and I aforementioned the dysregulation how the engaging in the artistic process really helps to maintain or uh, retain homeostasis and balance and so that's at the root pretty much of what my dissertation is Love it. And keeping true to the translational health sciences program, very much so. Um, And we like to do that as well, because a lot of our listeners are clinicians. So if you could help us help them uh, figure out how they can incorporate the expressive art therapies into a patient's treatment plan. Is it something they should refer out to? Is it something they can do themselves? Give them the 411, please. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think it really depends on the team and it depends on who it is that you're working with. So as clinicians like yourselves, we go back to goals and the goals are what drive the treatment. And so we can say that there's a continuum of therapy and therapeutic, right? My old professor, Ron Hayes, used to call it the ick and the e. What is therapeutic and what is therapy? And how does the art fit in? You know, like what are the goals? Are they prevention or wellness or rehab? Is this a child life program? Or are the goals more clinical in nature where you're looking at symptom reduction? So ultimately, you know, art therapists don't have a patent on Crayola right? And the more art that people do, or the more art making, or the more that people are exposed to the arts, then we can understand the better off we're going to be. We can look at that through clinical work or education, 
or whichever, right? So like, how is it that the arts might be helpful and useful? A really good way to kind of conceptualize this is with the pandemic and how online virtual therapy, obviously, it has taken a major boom. And ultimately, engaging in play and alternative methods can help enhance the connection that takes place in a virtual platform. Absolutely. And at the same time, our therapists have specialized training to understand how to use materials and how to use the creative process to facilitate treatment goals, to facilitate patient goals. And so we have to be careful because I think that there's this blanket understanding like, oh, if I work, if I do a a coloring book and I color one of these mandalas, that's going to be healthy and that's art therapy. And it's like, no, that's a, that's a way to engage in art making, but it might not be healthy because for what might be calming or mindful to one might cause anxiety for another because they're, you know, might fear drawing outside of the lines or something. So my point here is that creativity doesn't always feel good. And we can understand that the arts being more present is a healthy thing. But when you include the arts in your practice, you need to be mindful about what that scope of practice is. There's a more serious way of thinking about this too, which is an ethical obligation that has to do with scope of practice. And so I'll just pick up with talking about trauma. You know, we might think, oh, let's engage this child that's been traumatized in art making because that'll help them open up and talk about themselves. Well, opening up also runs a risk of becoming flooded or overwhelmed. And Mm. so a person that, yeah, emotionally flooded, you know, so a person that doesn't have an understanding or a training of what to do about that um, could really be doing a disservice to the patient. So I think, yeah, be mindful, pay attention to self, right? We're in this business of um, trying to go maybe a little bit inward and and listening to to oneself. And, And how can you integrate the arts or music in a way that maintains the integrity of what psychotherapy actually is. And, and ultimately, of course, it comes back to the goals and treatment. So, and let me just add to that, um, a treatment team, you know, a lot of people call art therapy or the expressive therapies complementary therapies. And I, I take a bit of an issue with that in that the expressive therapies can be complementary but we are all we can be primary and so that's something to think about too like how what's the team constellation and how might a referral or a consult be useful for an art therapist versus having an art therapist on your team well, that is definitely something for us to mull over, um, and I think a great place to end. So that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Juliet. Thank you. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.